0: Hello and welcome to Scott Rock, our brand new podcast by Climb Scotland, bringing you climbing stories and mountain tales from Scottish underdogs and local heroes. Your hosts are the legendary, well,
1: me, Callum McBain, and... Me, Robert McKenzie. Callum, what is the plan, bud? Well, we both love interview podcasts, and for our jobs we get to travel around and speak to loads of different climbers... So we thought we would combine both of these things and share the stories we hear through this podcast.
0: That's right. We're not just interviewing the hardcore among you, but literally anyone that we think has a cool story to tell. And we know that there's a lot of you out there. So keep an eye out every
1: fortnight for the latest Climber chat. And if you have anyone you'd like to hear from, or if you want to be
0: in the show yourself, let us know and spread the Scott Rock word. And remember guys, when you get back out there climbing, back to the crags, back to the walls, be safe and do your buddy checks. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Today we are here with Robert McKenzie. Now, these uh, interviews between me and Robert, I suppose, are only... Ever so slightly less cringe-worthy than doing a podcast and interviewing yourself, almost like maybe like, we're like just a tiny step away from being as cringy as that. Um, <laughs> but let's face it, COVID has probably done stranger things to people than this. Yes. Yeah. So today I will be interviewing good old Robert McKenzie. Um, how would I describe Robert? Here we go. Mm. Everyone, we is, go. Everyone's always interested in their, their, their description, aren't they? <laughs> I suppose I, I mainly know you... or The main thing I know you for is probably all the stuff you've done around Glasgow with kids and climbing. So at your time at GCC through the youth squad and also through the club you run currently, the Glasgow Gorillas. Yeah. And then the our kind of big aspect of your life that I would always kind of think about is your kind of history of being a competition climber, um, particularly being from, like, the north of Scotland and representing GB at, like, a really high level. Um, it's my only claim to fame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's the main two things I always think of when I think Robert McKenzie, but is there anything you want to
0: add to that or...? Uh, not at the moment, I'm sure we'll probably get into some things during the interview. Mm. I don't want to start answering questions already. <laughs> also, I don't want to sit here and just big myself up. Oh no, <laughs> give <laughs> myself a massive ego before we start and make everybody switch off. Well, I'm gonna to totally shut
1: you down in this interview, so <laughs> oh, <No. laughs> excellent. excellent, but anyway, so before we delve into all these like really important questions in this podcast, I think. To be honest, there's one question that's going to hit at the core of what we're going to talk about, and I'm going to go. I'm I'm just going to go straight in with this question. Oh, here we go. Um, but I want to paint a bit of a picture, like paint the scene first for the question. Okay. So we were wrong about COVID. Infection does not lead to immunity. Infection leads to the second wave, which incurs the zombie apocalypse. Oofed. Robert has managed to escape the concrete jungle that is Glasgow, which is now infested by the living dead. But you now must pick a team of three well-known climbers to be part of your zombie hunting team. Who would you
0: pick and why? Ooh. Ooh. And I get, I get full choice of any any climber period or any Scottish climber. Any, any, we... any reasonably well-known climber, reasonably well-known climber, alive, alive and dead, could be alive and dead. Yeah, you can alive you can... and dead. Ooh. Oh wow, that's a really hard question. You should have given me some prior warning on this question. I need to put some <laughs> thought in. I need to put some thought in here. Uh, okay, I'm gonna say. A. Uh, Oh, I'm going to say uh, McTie. Oh, okay. McTie. Yeah. Banter points. Yeah. Uh, Ex-military, knows how to protect himself and the team. And uh, old school mountain rescue member, knows how to keep everybody safe at all times. Oh, I reckon choice. he's a good shout. Yeah. I reckon with Mick Ty around, I can have literally anybody else and it doesn't really matter because Mick's got our back forever. <laughs> <laughs> the remainder of your choices are just like fillers. <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> oh, we're going to really offend whoever you see it now.
0: <laughs> Ooh, right, okay. Uh, yeah, Mick Ty. Um... Oh, right, I, I... I apologize for how awfully cringy this is, but it will be. Oh no, I can't no, no. Oh god, you've really got me with this one. Right, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you on my team just so you don't feel left out. Oh I'm gonna put you on my team just so you don't feel left out. Um Let's see. Say... Well, oh, I'll take Robbie Phillips.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll take Robbie Phillips. What's there? So you, you've got to give a Y for me and Robbie Phillips, though. Am I just yeah, so I so,
0: don't feel left out? Uh, yours is just so you don't feel left out. <laughs> Robbie, so I've got Mick for the protection and the, uh, the know-how side. Yeah. Robbie will climb us up anything we point him at. So if zombies are coming and there's a, like massive 8C headwall above us. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that in, in a pressure moment, Robbie would get us to the top. Mm. Uh, and then Mick would be able to talk him through a whole system to get me up there, because I wouldn't be climbing that.
1: Yeah, You'd also yeah. have
0: really, really good social media if Robbie was on your team too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about the, the publicity, you know. If you're ever going to get people coming to rescue, you need to have a social media presence. Yeah, you'd have really good Instagram stories. Um, I might rein him in a little bit with the Instagram stories, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I know that. Like having said that, there are two people possibly listening to this that are massively offended right now that they're not on my, <laughs> uh, not on my list. But the Fishwives will will remain remain Fishwives in my heart forever. Okay, but I wouldn't have okay. them on my zombie apocalypse team. Which I don't know if they'll recover from that, but <laughs> I don't think they will. I think there's a lot of people that are feeling a bit shunned right now. Hmm. It's a divisive first question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I might I might reevaluate that further on in the interview. <laughs> you can have some more time to think about it. You can have yeah. if you got if you got some
1: backups you want to put in there. You can Some backup drop them in. choices, right. I'll I'll have a think for some backup choices. Oh, there's loads of backup choices. <clears throat> anyway, I suppose we should crack on with like non zombie related questions, but
0: No, I think all the questions in this entire chat should be zombie related. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, we're done. That's the end of the interview. That's the only zombie. (laughs)
1: Um, Right. So, I suppose a slightly more normal podcast question would be, you had quite an interesting upbringing in terms of climbing. I think at least I, even before I met you, knew of loads of kind of wild stories of the the Mackenzie's from the north but <laughs> could you talk maybe a little bit about that and kind of how you got into climbing and that that kind of wild kind of family you have
0: uh I right so what well, I was three when like, like my dad's been climbing for way before I was born um he's he's pretty old school uh that total self-taught kind of mentality lots of mistakes lots of errors somehow survived through all of them to eventually have me uh but i was three when he when he properly got me into it uh he made me got made me a harness out of old car seat belts because he's so cheap he couldn't afford a uh, a proper harness so old car seat belts would have done uh and yeah took it from there and you know back when i was starting out there wasn't really climbing walls. The climbing wall at Glenmore Lodge was the closest one, and that was miles away. Um, so we spent most of my childhood, you know, trad climbing. Um, there's loads of little great spots around Dingwall, around Inverness, where I grew up. Um, yeah, trad climbing was my thing. And, you know, you know yourself, if you go out trad climbing, you get into some crazy adventure sometimes. So, yeah, we did some some wacky stuff while I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the the wall in Inverness opened up and I, you know, started getting indoor climbing and the competition thing opened up, which I, I'm, I don't know if you've got questions on later. But, uh, yeah, definitely had a fair few adventures in the younger years.
1: Hmm. Would your upbringing have been a lot different if there was, like, a local wall that was really good? Was that kind of going to
0: trad spots a really big part of your history? Or Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think I would have had... As much of an appreciation for it, um, if I didn't have that up bringing in in trad climbing, um, like I, <coughs> when I was you know maybe fourteen, fifteen, doing competitions, doing loads of indoor climbing for training and everything, uh, I kind of was, you know, I've spoken about this before. I, I was kind of getting a little bit dull just with the repetitiveness of it. I didn't have the same love for indoor climbing that i did outdoors and i couldn't quite put my finger on why i was maybe a little bit de-psyched um but having one or two epic outdoor adventures after that kind of made me realize exactly why i liked it um and it was for that you know getting out out into the outdoors out into the mountains having proper adventures seeing amazing views seeing your country um Climbing on amazing routes—it was—it was that part that I loved, and that's what I grew up with. So I think if I was getting into it now and I was just an indoor climber, I don't think I would maybe have the same—the same connection. I—I I feel like yeah, I would have missed out on something.
1: So another question to put you in the spot is if—if if you put yourself in your dad's position, so. If you had a family, would you... Do you think you go through the same actions your dad did? Or was there anything that you thought was maybe a bit too risky? Or is there anything... Would you do anything differently to bring up <laughs> uh, your kids if you ever have them?
0: Uh, well, I'd buy a harness instead of car seat belts for a start. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I don't think... You know, we did some crazy stuff. We did some wacky adventures and, like... My dad, when we were growing up, my dad would ask us, me and my little brother, you know, what do you want to do this weekend? And we'd say, oh, we want to go do this, uh, and he would set it up. And but I don't think we did anything that was that was over risky, uh, because, well, he's actually re- I don't want to like big up his ego too much, but uh, you know, he's actually quite skilled in in the whole climbing uh, <laughs> climbing thing, so he can make crazy wacky ideas come to life in a safe way Hmm. um and i know a lot of like non-climbers would look at some of the stuff we do and just think that that is absolutely mental and at no point should you be putting a child in that position but in reality it was safe the entire time um and i mean we did some stupid stuff we did some really stupid stuff um do you want an example.
1: Yeah, let's so pick the, the most ridiculous
0: stupid thing and let's hear the story. Okay, this might not be the most ridiculous stupid thing. Uh, but this is one of the funniest ones. Uh the the little village Eventon where my my dad lives now with my grandfather. Um there my family came from around that area. Uh for you know a long 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 time. And there's, uh, up in the woods behind the town, there's a little gorge that's really deep, but actually really skinny. And there's a plaque uh, next to it that details a story of a local man who jumped over the gorge. And that local man is actually a family member of mine. Uh, And we looked at the gorge, and it is actually, you know, it's skinny, but it's not skinny enough to jump across. So the story of him jumping across it just seemed absolutely nuts to us but seeing as it's in our blood I suppose we had to try it (laughs) so we rigged a top rope we got the ice axes out and we spent an afternoon jumping into this gorge (laughs) because none of us made it over it (laughs) we would run off the edge jump into the gorge and try and hook grass and bits of tree roots and stuff with the ice axes on the other side None of which worked. It did not work in in the slightest. But you know, we were we were roped up. We were safe. We weren't going to go anywhere. Um, but yeah, I think that is definitely one of the stupidest afternoons we've spent. <laughs> That's
1: amazing. But did you, <laughs> did this like long lost McKenzie that did the jump? Did he have the benefit
0: of ice axes, or were you guys like dumbing it down a little bit? Oh no, like we totally dumbed it down. He just went for it. Like the absolute legend that he is, I just went for it. And I don't know, there was no details about what part of the gorge he jumped, whether he managed to find a skinnier section than we were trying. But yeah, it's a good effort nonetheless. Yeah, no no top rope as well. No I think top rope. if anything,
1: the, the Mackenzie lineage has got a bit like, a bit more safe over the years rather than <laughs> oof, uh, Dem's fighting words McBain Dem's fighting words resorting to top ropes and ice actors. God what next <laughs> look we are the top road tough guys Um, that's quite like a, something that I kind of picked up on there is it's really cool that your dad seems to give you a lot of choice about what you do it's like it seems like you and your brother guided a lot of the activities you want to do like you said you wanted to go do this and your dad would just kind of set yeah. it up and let you go for it that's, like, pretty yeah, cool. it was. Do you kind of it was carry... Really,
0: Darn you go. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Like, you know, coming up to the weekend, if the weather was good and we were going to go out and do something, he would give us the option. And we wouldn't always choose climbing. Some weekends we wanted to go fishing, but, um, yeah, we'd we'd be given the choice and whatever we came up with, he tried to make happen, you know. We wanted to walk to the top of this hill. We'd go and walk to the top of this hill. We wanted to go climb this route. We went and climbed that route. Um I remember i was i think i was only nine we were going to sky uh we were going to go and sit on the Keok for lunch that was that was the plan but i think in the drive on the way over i said to my dad like i want to lead arrow route uh which is that epic is it a, it's a v-diff right oh and the Keogh on uh, sky. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. epic v-diff slab um and yeah his response was like yeah sure cool go for it like by that point, I'd done quite a bit of trad leading, so he was quite happy with my skills, I suppose. Um, and yeah, he totally let me lead arrowroot uh, at age nine, which to this day freaks a lot of climbers out, because it's a really exposed, scary slab. Yeah. Um, when
1: when you were like a kid and you asked him stuff like that, were you, were you surprised when he said yes? Or were you like, did you just expect him to say, like, what was your kind of... Do you remember back then what it was like,
0: or...? Well, you can there like... was definitely a couple of times where I was like, oh, I want to do that. And he'd go, yeah, sure. And I'd be like, really? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, now I'm committed. Now I've got to do it. <laughs> Is that uh, sort of a... Oh, sorry. On you go. No, no, no. So like, that, uh, the first, I think, what I would consider, or what I considered back then, anyway, my first like proper hard trad lead was uh, Dracula uh, at Dantelchig classic e3 big steep roof crack it's it's just amazing um and from the moment like i was like ah. we've top roped it a bunch of times because it's just a really fun swing if you mess it up uh but i was just like i, w- I want to try leading it and when he said yes i was like oh oh right okay i'm committed now i've actually got to try it <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think i was on that route for like 45 minutes trying to battle like figure my way through the sequence that i knew how to climb i just couldn't in the exposure uh on the sharp end moment could not remember what i was doing but man what a lead that was that was spectacular
1: that's ace i wonder like do you, do you think i just like talking about risk do you think your dad was perfect at judging that you probably weren't in that much danger but like your perception of the risk was quite high so you almost have like the best of both worlds where you're actually in quite a safe position, but you you think you're not, so you're kind of like growing and learning. Was yeah. your dad like really good at just judging that sort of on the fly?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think do, I don't think it was so much on the fly because, like I said, he was he was really experienced before I even came along. So when I suggest, you know, can I go and do this route, you know, Arrow route or or Dracula <coughs> are the perfect examples, you know, like can I go and lead this route, like he's done those routes a bunch of times he knows that the gear on them is solid they are safe routes to to lead yeah uh, you'll be able to get gear and the falls aren't that bad but in my really young head thinking, what age were you as well this sort of so for Arrowroot, i think i was only nine what about dracula i think i was only nine and dracula i'm oh i don't know potentially potentially around the same because that's maybe, like that's pretty older pretty young a little bit older pretty young, um, but yeah, like I, th- I think in my young head, I was like, oh my god, these are really risky because, well, one e three is a hard grade, um, and Arrowroot is just one of the most exposed slabs um, ever. But I think he knew that I had done enough to know how to protect myself on these things, and that there was enough protection on these routes that it, it was uh, that I would have been able to make myself safe. You know, in reality, I did uh, like a fifty-five foot run out on out route because I couldn't <laughs> find any gear. Um, which, yeah, that was a that was a scary moment. Uh, I remember I had hadn't I placed like two nuts coming off the little belay ledge, uh, starting on the slab and just fully committing to climbing for a long time. Then realised that I was way above my gear, uh, and I couldn't find anything apart from this weird flared. Undercut crack, uh, and I spent ages there trying to ram a cam inside of it, and it the cam stayed long enough for me to clip it, and then as soon as I moved, I heard it dinking off down the slab. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in reality, whether I did actually protect them well enough is maybe another question. But yeah, no, I think he was he was quite good at knowing knowing what things were were going to be safe enough. You know, yeah. Um, and I don't think I genuinely asked, or me or my little brother asked, to do anything that was just too out there. Um, but yeah, there was definitely, you know, a couple of couple of trips where we got, or I, let's say I, Dylan didn't seem to get. Oh well, no, in fact, Dylan did seem to get in something in some dodgy situations. Dylan was potentially worse than me, uh, but I definitely got myself into some dodgy situations through my own stupid decision-making. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we did anything that was too risky. <laughs> no. And yeah.
1: another thing I was thinking was, is that kind of, like, that risk assessment and that kind of, like, options of choice your dad gave you something that's been important to you when you've coached kids now and, like, recently? Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. Like, I um. I've got a huge respect for that amount of choice that I had back then. Um and I I am a firm believer that if that if you have worked with a, a, a kid or a young person and you kinda know what their ability level is and you give them that little bit of responsibility to to step up they always do. I've never, ever had uh, a kid let me down when I've given them that little bit of responsibility. So if one of them asks, can I do this? Um, and I've done my risk assessment and I can see that it's, you know, there is a safe way to do it, then yeah, absolutely. Do it within the safe way. Um, and that, could, that can be indoor stuff. That can be outdoor stuff. It, it doesn't doesn't really matter um but i think giving giving a kid that little bit of responsibility and making them aware that they are making a quite a serious decision in doing this um is a really good life lesson for them um and i've, I've never had anybody let me down um i had a couple of was it last year was it, uh, at a crag with a couple of young a couple of young lads that i've known for a long long time uh, I think they're maybe 17, 18. Uh, they've never done a trad lead before, but they top-roped that uh, Gobi's Roof at... Uh, Campus, Campus Baden, the, the classic E2. And I know that route, like, inside and out. I know that, you know, you use the gold cam <clears> in the crack at the bottom, green cam out of the crack at the left, small blue cam in the horizontal crack. You do the hard move, the crux move, and then you get a solid silver cam. I know that route inside and out. And the two of them came down and they said, can I lead that? Do you think I could lead that?" I'm like, yeah, sure. I don't see why not. Like, you know exactly I've shown you exactly where the gear goes. Uh the gear is unmess upable And if you do fall off the crux move, you've got a cam right in front of your face. Um so the fall isn't even it isn't big. Um So, yeah, and the two of them led the route quite happily, you know? And they were both really really cautious of their gear they were really careful about how they placed it how they climbed it you know they were checking in with me the whole time so yeah giving people that little bit of responsibility to yes you can make a uh, a tough decision you know a, a big decision like that but if you're careful and cautious then there's no reason why you shouldn't shouldn't try it you know I potentially shot myself in the foot there. There's going to be a lot of people going. Oh, that's ridiculous!
1: <laughs> I'll never get Robert McKenzie to coach my kids. Now I've heard this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I do. I kind of want to get onto your coaching stuff, but maybe for other people it'd be good just to have like a little bit of an outline of like your kind of competition days because that was kind of a big part of your life. Like maybe just kind of yeah. briefly like what that was like and what what level you competed
0: at, and that'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, so the climbing wall in Inverness, it kind of all started when the climbing wall in Inverness uh, opened up uh, when I was, I think, eight. I think I was eight when it opened up. And my dad helped build the wall and then ended up running the place for a long time. So I I basically lived at that wall for a a long time. And I think one of the things that gave me a huge benefit in being able to climb well was all my days trad climbing because that just forces technique. Way better than, you know, 10 years of, of indoor climbing. Uh, so, yeah, when we started doing comps, uh, when the competition scene kind of opened up and we started running the the YCS comps or the bricks, so it was back then, uh, maybe there wasn't that many people climbing in my category at the time, but, yeah, I was actually not too bad. Uh, I was, yeah... I'd, I'd, I don't want to big myself up too much but I, I, I won quite a lot of stuff <laughs> um, and yeah uh, I think I competed in like the BRICS and the BLCCs for a couple of years before when I was I think 12 I got the invite to be uh, on the, the GB team which you know back then it was just the one team uh, so you know I got to go out in all these training sessions with and, and like uh, international trips and all these international competitions with some really, really mega strong, really cool people, um, which you know gave me a huge amount of sight because I was one of those kids that was super competitive. Even if with my friends, I was super competitive. Like I said, like competing with Nick Deboost and Mike Lee and Ben Lister and that up the road, uh, that gave me a like a, a lot of fight. And then when I joined the GB squad, I had all these really Big, strong guys like uh, Tom Bolger and that, uh, and I just I was like, right, well, I've got to beat them. They're the next targets, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did well, I was six years on the GB squad, um, and man, I did some cool, cool stuff with them. Some really cool stuff. Uh, I went on a lot of amazing trips, lots of competitions, you know, going away to foreign countries for a weekend not really seeing anything other than the inside of a climbing wall but meeting the international climbing community was something that i will never ever regret that was absolutely something that uh, i loved absolutely loved that um i'm gonna put you on the spot a bit again oh
1: sorry hit me no go for it put me on the spot just because you mentioned something so what is the the wildest story you've got from these uh Competition Climbing
0: trips Oh Oh Right okay uh, Right So the question I'm asking myself In my head Is do I get myself In trouble And be honest Or do I tell you The le- the least bad stories you got, you got to go For the honest The honest go for the, go for the honest Oh god I was a terrible Member of that squad I was so badly behaved I'm not going to lie I was a nightmare For my team managers uh, Tony Powell And Ian Dunn Will back that up uh, I nearly got a yellow card on my first ever squad trip to France. We went to Font for like a week. We got the ferry over uh, and they were serving, they were giving out three glasses of champagne when you went and got food. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to France. They drink wine in France. I will do the, the done thing and I'll have a glass of champagne. I then told one of the chaperones, Pete Whitaker's mum, Jill, uh, that I'd had a glass of champagne uh, and she rightly reminded me that one, I was 12, and two, <laughs> <laughs> two, it was a dry team and I should not be drinking alcohol. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I got myself in trouble on my first ever team trip. well, oh, that's like was... double reprimanded, underage oh. drinking, mm-hmm. and uh... yeah. So, yeah, man, we, we did some bad stuff on that team. Uh, we did uh, an underwear run around Warsaw. <laughs> Yeah, we ran about two miles in our underwear around the hotel. That was uh, probably not to be recommended.
1: <laughs> There'll be some like some poor old lady in, in Warsaw that's been scarred by these like semi naked GB youth squad members. She'll she remember to this day this story of these kids running out of the hotel
0: in their pants. <laughs> um but I will say I will back myself up for all the stupid things we did, uh, sneaking out the hotel late at night and climbing up the walls of of the hotels and stuff like that. Like for all the stupid stuff we did, I was actually kind of responsible. The I say kind of responsible. The 2008 Sydney World Cup. Uh, I. There was one day our chaperone's team manager, Tony Powell, and his wife, uh, they wanted to have a day kind of to themselves, uh, not really looking after us so much. Um, so Tony turned around to me, of all people, probably the least responsible person on that team, and said, there's the bus into town, take everyone into town for the day, be back here half past seven for dinner. And my instant reaction was, guys, get on the bus before he changes his mind, let's go. And I, we had a great day. We messed around in the city centre, but I had everybody on that team back at the hotel by half past seven. They chose the 12-year-old champagne drinker. What was going through their heads?
1: <laughs> but I know it, it comes back to that. Like, you got given a bit of responsibility, and yeah, you you,
0: you didn't mess up, did you? Uh, no. Well, I knew the consequences if I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> red card. Um, yeah. I did actually get a red card from the team at one point. What was that for? Are you willing to show uh them? Okay, okay, so I'm gonna say that my red card. I I got a few yellow cards on the trip, on on team trips, for stupid things that I did and misbehaviour, but the reason I got a red card was absolutely nothing to do with me. Both of them were a young lad, Pete Johnson, from Glasgow. I hope he listens to this because I'm calling you out. (laughs) So, one trip, he stole one of the team members' room keys and hid in my room. and that team member then kicked down the door to my hotel room and I got the yellow card because I should have stopped it. <laughs> I feel like that's unfair. Uh, then on the very next trip, Pete was sitting on the windowsill uh, of off our room. The, the window opened in the way. My bag was on the other side of the window and I closed the window slightly just to get to my bag. And he thought I was closing the window on him. So he put his arm through the window. <laughs> I glass. got a double yellow I got yeah. Threw two panes of glass. I got a double yellow card for that, and that was three yellow cards on the record. Red card, six month suspension. <laughs> so I'm going to say that was not my fault. I, I probably it- deserved it, but it
1: wasn't my fault. <laughs> I love that All these like red cards and yellow cards have nothing to do with anything that goes on in the climbing wall. It's just all this stuff that happened in hotels. Oh, yeah, like- and- we were totally focused when it came to the climbing wall side. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, a bit more of a, a general question then. Go. Is there like one overarching kind of life lesson you feel like you learned from your kind of competition days?
0: Ooh. Yes, yes, big one. So, when I started competing uh, on the on the GB squad. Uh, I was I was doing not too bad. I made a couple, uh, couple of finals in Europeans, and uh, I made semis a couple of times in World Cups and stuff. Um, and then after a couple of years, maybe I was f- 15, 15, maybe? Um, like I said, I've I've spoken about this before, but I got quite de-psyched. Uh, my performances and comps went downhill. I wasn't making finals I wasn't making semis um I just wasn't doing too well and I, I couldn't quite work out why I was de-psyched but that was then coming home with me and I was de-psyched in training and I just wasn't enjoying it I almost to be honest I almost gave up climbing completely because I just really wasn't enjoying it for for a little bit there um and then we did that uh, we went and did a, a winter climbing day up in Corrie Schnecktep and Karen Gorms we did uh Soloed Pygmy Ridge and there was a moment where I was sitting on a little skinny ledge absolutely freezing but I looked out at you know the view and what I was doing and it just it all came home to me exactly why I loved climbing and it was the realisation that I am focusing too much on placing myself against others and performing rather than just enjoying what I'm doing. Because I got into climbing because I lab- absolutely loved the climbing. It, the climbing was the most important part. The movement side, the the enjoyment, the exposure, that was what was important to me. And over the last couple of years, I'd maybe lost a little bit of that. I was focusing more on just the performance and where I placed compared to other people, which it, it dawned on me that that does not matter to me. It does not matter to me. And after that, when I went back to competitions and uh, my placing started getting better and I was climbing better and I was having more fun because I wasn't taking it so seriously. Um, so yeah, the, I think the biggest life lesson that I got through that was that for, for me anyway, the the competitive side, I absolutely loved competitions, but not because of competing against other people or my performance it was about the enjoyment of climbing and a lot of that comes from the community meeting all these crazy wacky climbers from around the world but going to a competition you've got routes that are set by some of the best route setters in the world and they're always just spectacular things to climb they're so much fun yeah and for a moment there i was missing all that because i was focusing on the wrong things
1: I hmm. see that brings me on to the quite well, this is like a bit of a philosophical question but Ooh. interested to hear your, your take hit me do you reckon comps so climbing competitions do they, are they valuable in the fact they teach kids about failure or do you think there's a negative aspect where maybe they encourage harmful comparison to others, kind of like you were just talking about there
0: Yeah, like, it is subjective. I was able to make that realisation, but there have been so many kids that I've seen from my days, from now, who aren't able to make that realisation before they just hate climbing. Um, And climbing does teach, like, competitive climbing does teach... An amazing resilience to failure and personal uh, a drive for personal progression and a uh, an enjoyment to in in pushing yourself beyond where you thought you could um, it does teach that and those are valuable life lessons that go into a lot of things you know being able to push yourself further and uh, push yourself harder and deal with when things don't work out learn lessons from that. Uh, they are hugely valuable life lessons, um, but if you're not able to deal with the the failures and remember why you're enjoying it, if it always just comes down to a negative thing for you, if you always walk away with a negative thing, uh, that is a really unhealthy, unhealthy thing to have. Um, and a lot of kids they, they they don't they don't quite make that realization before before they drop out. Um, and, you know, I... I am a firm believer that kids make that realisation themselves if you give them the space to do so. Um, they will realise why they enjoy competitions, what part of the competitions they that they enjoy, if you give them the space to do so. Whereas, you know, what you see in most... Well, I'm not gonna say most, but a lot of other sports is the the highly competitive, highly pushy coaching, parenting, you know, or or external feedback from other competitors. You know, that highly pushy push, pushy nature is something that drives a lot of negativity, um, and I see it a lot coming in now. Into climbing quite a lot of of the pushiness you know from from coaches from parents uh where they're pushing the kids to be better and perform better uh because yes they have the capability to to have a better performance on on the day or whatever but um pushing to perform better than other people instead of just enjoying what you're doing um you get in doing that you take away the ability for the kids to make the choice of why they enjoy competitions um you know if you're if you're constantly pushing them to perform better they only see climbing and com- competitions as i must perform better rather than oh that was a really fun route or i met this person today they climbed better than me but it doesn't really matter because they're really cool and i'm going to go hang out with them this weekend mm. um yeah that's that's the only side of competitions that i I see as being really negative um
1: why do you think that parents and coaches kind of fall into that pushy trap like what'cause well, I suppose that that's that's a really common that like, you hear that in loads of sports and loads of activities and loads even to do with academia and kids in school like that's like quite yeah, common yeah. but like what is it you think makes parents and maybe coaches fall into that kind of performance
0: orientated kind of trap so I, I think there's a lot of things that go into it you know from the coaches side that's their job you know they have a, an external pressure to get the results because they're p- being paid to get the results um, and I mean that can, that can cloud a lot of things for, for a professional when you've been given a task and you have to meet that task and if you you know see a, one of your competitors who just isn't having a very good day or isn't isn't psyched and isn't trying that hard or doesn't really care that can that can be a a big pressure for a coach because it's not then a reflection of their work it's it's just down to the kid but at the end of the day it's the child's choice whether they perform or not you know it's it's not a, a coach's thing but i think for for from a coach's perspective it is a little bit of the professional pressure of i'm being paid to get results i need to get results um i think what we see a lot now with with parents who you know and, and like let's let's you know not lump everybody together absolutely not every parent is the same definitely not um but there are one or two that who are really pushy with things um and I think what I've noticed is that it's it's families that have come from a completely non climbing background who are maybe coming from a different sport that has that really pushy, really competitive nature around it and using the same introducing the same attitudes and the same uh pressures into climbing competitions, which climbing competitions have never really been that, so it feels a bit odd, feels a bit awkward to me and it, I I really don't don't like it um cuz i just see the negative sides of of being that way but uh yeah i think it's maybe that attitude's coming from external other sports uh and coming into climbing um then you've got you know you know you, maybe your classic uh People trying to le- relive their dreams through their kids, kind of thing. Mm. But that's a, a whole level of psychology that I'm not going to get into. <laughs> we're uh, not, we're not qualified to talk about that. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely, definitely not. But like, you know, I'm not. I'm going to say that it, the majority of people out there are are not like that. You know, I there's maybe there's I've maybe seen one or two in the last few years that I I I really didn't like the attitudes of or or whatever. But you know, the majority of people out there are. The same as, the same as the rest of the climbing community, they're super chilled about everything. Um, I think the kids put a lot of pressure on themselves, uh, because maybe they think their coaches want them to do better or their parents want them to do better. Um, but like I said, if you give them the space to to learn why they enjoy comps, then they will make that lesson. Um, I think one of the bigger ones is potentially the social media side. Okay. They. You know, uh, social media side of looking on Instagram and seeing how this person's performing or whatever and thinking I need to be there. I'm just as good as this person. I need to try harder or, uh, there are young people who are battling to try and get sponsorships. So they, they need to be the tippy top of the scale to be able to get a sponsorship. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really negative thing. You know, that seeing using social media to compare yourself and your performance to the rest of the world um, it, for most people, is always just a negative thing because they never feel like they're they're achieving that same same goal. Um, yeah, I think the the whole striving to be sponsored uh thing can be really negative for for a lot of people. You know, yeah, uh, even those that are already sponsored, you know, they've got the pressure that they need to they need to maintain their 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 level their performance to to stay sponsored um but in saying that you know i've i've noticed in the last wee while you know the last couple of years sponsors are not sponsoring just the best anymore they're they're not they're sponsoring people that have that are inspirational rather than just the best and they're not dropping people because their performance drops or anything like that so they're they're definitely sponsoring just inspirational people now which gives a lot of scope for people to be a little bit more relaxed about their performance, I suppose. Yeah. Social media can be, like, a dangerous thing, though,
1: because the one thing that... It kind of puts everything through through this, like, lens of success. Like, people are always going to post about good things that are happening to them and then maybe kind of filter out the bad things. But then what happens is everyone looks like they're just having a great time and climbing really hard and smashing their projects or whatever, and you kind of... You don't often hear as much about people struggling and having a hard time. But do you find is there like is there a positive way you can use social media or do you think it is it mainly more negative or um
0: yeah there there is positive ways to use social media as long as what you're putting out there is is honest about what you're what you're actually doing you know if you're only ever posting the good stuff um then that's all people see and if those people are out there comparing themselves to you then it's you know mostly going to be negative for them whereas if you're kind of open and say you know today I had a, I actually had a really bad day I I didn't climb well at all uh, you know that's it's more relatable for everybody and so it makes people a little bit more comfortable um but i think social media is social media is an amazing thing for bringing people together and building a community and sharing ideas and making plans and uh building friendships. It is a, a thing that binds the community quite a lot more. Uh, so I think social media is a really good thing for that, but it is definitely a huge negative for comparing, comparing each other um, or comparing your performance to, to other people, you mm-hmm. know,
1: Oh, that was a pretty deep, deep That chat was super about. deep. Yeah. That was super, super deep. I don't know if I've got any psychology. I need something. I'm going to have to come up with a more lighthearted question to kind of like <laughs> bring the tone back up. So I'm going to put you in the spot again a little bit. Oh, here we go. Here we go. You've got a gun to your head. Hit me. You can only do one of these things the rest of your life and not the other one. Personal climbing or coaching other climbers.
0: Ooh. And why, sorry. Yeah, you need to say why. Mm. Okay, as part of my coaching, am I allowed to climb things to sh- to demonstrate or am I strictly no climbing? Total minimal amount of climbing when you're coaching. Whoa. Oh, Callum. Oh, Callum, you've got me, man. Callum, what are you doing? I don't know.
1: I found this question tough, but I think oh. I, I ended up falling down on one side pretty hard. I kind of justified it pretty strongly. I'm gonna
0: say coaching. Oh, yeah. I I'm I did gonna... I did not say coaching. So that's interesting. Yeah. I'm gonna say coaching. My my justification is like, I. I get a huge amount of satisfaction and enjoyment about with teaching other people, and that could be at, at absolutely any level, whether it's it's performance coaching or intro sessions or you know, teaching someone how to uh, tie a figure of eight. I, yeah, I really, really enjoy doing that because for me, climbing is, is the community. For me, like I could be quite happy being part of the community and not climbing rather than climbing and not being part of the community. I, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I 100% back up my 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 suggestion that like it's I would be quite happy just teaching and coaching people and being part of the community and giving what I can give and seeing other people progress and enjoy climbing and not climb myself because I think I would miss if I was just climbing myself personally, I'd get a lot of stuff done but I would miss being part of that that growth. Mm. I think we
1: found the the first ever true act of altruism in this podcast.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's not altruism because it's for my own self indulgence.
1: Ah, uh, true. Yeah, you've you've always got that comeback. No, that's yeah. interesting. Um, I feel like a total like selfish person now because I <laughs> I was like totally I was thinking about that question. I was like, oh, I definitely definitely disclaiming.
0: What was your justification?
1: Well, so my to be fair, my justification was that if I think back to all the times where I've really enjoyed coaching and felt like I made a big impact it's when I've at that time been doing a lot of personal climbing and personally been really psyched and I Mm. think my motivation for coaching comes from my own drive for climbing and I feel like I, I couldn't coach if I didn't have that drive that personal drive for climbing I just it would almost be a bit hollow me coaching if I didn't climb as well, so I kind of ended up just being like, nah, I need to just climb personally, I don't think I could coach very well if I didn't didn't climb personally, I guess that's a bit of a two-faced answer though, it's not it's not really coming down on the the selfish side, it's saying I couldn't do option two without doing both of them
0: Like you, You couldn't do option two just coaching for the rest of your life with all of your heart, if your heart wasn't in it and you need the climbing side to and like I agree with that. That's why that's a stupid question, and you should never have asked that because that put me on the spot and I didn't like it. Next
1: question. I think this is like not lighthearted, not not too heavy. Should be just
0: about good. Just about right. It's just like the Goldilocks question.
1: Yeah, it's like the not not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> just just right. Um If you had to pick Three people from your life that have influenced your climbing, who are they and why? Oh,
0: I like this question. I like this question a lot. I, think, I actually think about this very question a lot. Uh, is this coming from the, the theory that there are three people in your life that you can always attribute the your, your, your personality and the beliefs that you have to three people? That three people may change, but there's always three top people. Oh, I've never heard that before. Yeah, so that that is a genuine... a genuine, How have you not heard that? It's a philosophical thing. Psychology, mate. Psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there's three people in your life that you can always attribute your beliefs in the way you are uh, to. And that three people may change, but there's a top three people. So number one will always be my dad because he's the... Silly man that got me into climbing in the first place, for better or worse. Cool. Um, hmm. Uh, I'm going to say Al Halewood because he has done all of the training I've ever done, apart from my Fundas Three. Wow. Yeah. Does that make you a? Are you like a mini Al Halewood in terms of your instructing? Uh, I mean, I'll leave him to make that decision definitely not you cannot compare me and hailwood jeez like yeah i've got a long way to go before i can even step into a toe of those shoes um but yeah al's done all of the qualifications that i've ever done so all of my qualification coaching knowledge has come from from him to be honest um and any of the work that i've done if I'm building up to something or anything he's the kind of benchmark for what I test myself against um, how, does a, how does an owl session run how does my session run uh, and ooh, person number three person number three changes a lot person number three changes a lot so it did used to be It used to be Michael Jeans. I thought you were going to say that. I don't know why. So it used to be Michael Jeans, like purely because Jeans made a decision uh, a while back that made me kind of wake up. Uh, So when I was, you know, when Jeans was at GCC, he was head coach, head root setter. Uh, I was one of his setters, one of his coaches. Uh, And I was possibly the least organized, least reliable person on his on his coaching staff Uh, I was a nightmare because a typical student just not really being all with it Um, and but I'd been there for for a while (laughs) and she's not going to like me saying this but uh, Christy McLeod then came on to to be one of the coaches uh, and me and Christy took on that that team but when Jeans was originally leaving for his role at Climb Scotland um, he asked Christie to to head the the team, uh, and I don't know I don't know why, but I'd always thought that I would have liked to have done it, and not even being considered, not even being asked. I was like, "What's that all about?" Uh, hang on, and I I had a look at myself and was like, "Oh, actually, I am." I understand exactly why he wouldn't choose me because I am a horrible person to work with. (laughs) Horrendously unorganised and unreliable. Yeah, I completely get that. So I asked him um, and he he, he said that it wasn't anything to do with that at all. But yeah, I think just that moment of realisation in my own head that I am not as good at this as I possibly could be made me tighten things up quite a lot. Um, So I think just that... Just that one little thing that had absolutely no nothing to do with me at all uh, made me wake up a little bit. But I think honestly, I think it has changed since then. Uh, I've got a friend Jenna Hunter uh, who, when I was swithering over whether to take the the Climb Scotland job or even apply for the Climb Scotland job, uh, I was I was really happy at GCC. I. I didn't really want to leave i loved my team i loved my little squad i I loved the work that i did all the coaching that i did um so thinking about applying for another job and going somewhere else for something different was a scary decision and uh i was speaking to her one night she's one of my best friends uh and i was explaining to her that i don't make big decisions like this ever i just float through life And she turned around with the most cheesy line I've ever heard. Don't float, soar. (laughs) And I think that was like, in my head was like, yeah, why don't hold myself back? I might as well try for something bigger than this. Uh, So that was the decision of joining Climb Scotland right then and there with the cheesiest line ever. But yeah, I don't think I, I... I might not be where I am sitting, talking to you, making this podcast if it wasn't for that stupidly cheesy line from Jenna. Can we just rewind to the fact that you
1: are a self-described floater? Yes, yes, I am a floater. <laughs> I've never heard a truer word word spoken about Robert McKenzie.
0: <laughs> thanks, thanks.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's funny, like yeah. Uh, you with jeans and with Jenna, it's funny how like such sometimes such a small phrase or a small comment or a small word can have this sort of profound impact. Like yep. it's, it, it's just I bet when you're on your deathbed and you cycle through all the moments in your life, it's those like little moments you
0: think about. Yeah, um, that's super interesting. And like um, jeans won't have any idea about that at all. Like he he won't know that. Uh, that uh, his decision to do that had nothing to do with me whatsoever, but it had a huge impact on me. Yeah, um, but that's the power because you never know when you say something to someone, it
1: might do the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're never sure when when you're being like that spark
0: for someone else. That's kind of what
1: makes it super
0: mysterious, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Hell, we we might have already had that moment for a few people. In fact, I can think of one moment where I hope I have. I was at Ratho one day and there was a song on and I was dancing away to myself. Nobody around me, I was just dancing. And this little kid came up and he was like, you're weird. I was like, yeah, I know, I know, I know I'm weird. And he was like, you're okay with being weird. I was like, yeah, because if you're weird, you're never bored. And like, honestly, I saw the light bulb in his head go, bing. Like, oh yeah, if you're you're a bit odd, you can always entertain yourself. (laughs) So we need
1: to have a look around Ratho for a kid that's just like dancing by himself Yeah. And we can find the, what the spark did. <laughs> I've never seen that kid since. <laughs> um, I suppose to round up, because we're almost like about an hour, yep. last one I wanted to touch on was, I think, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think you're a bit of a self, self, no, not a self described. I think you're, you're a bit of a couch crusher.
0: Whoa, whoa. Careful what you're saying here. Are you I calling me
1: fat? I reckon... <laughs> whoa, Saying that whoa, I crush whoa, whoa. couches,
0: that's really harsh,
1: dude. <laughs> Come on, man. Too too far out there for the Climb Scotland podcast. I know my nickname's Tubbs and Scotland all that, but podcast. it's not that bad. <laughs> no, but, like, I suppose thinking back to your setting days, like, kind of one of your top tributes was that you didn't seem to climb for a long periods of time, yet you suddenly came back very quickly and crushed pretty hard routes, so... If you could summarise really concisely, what's, like, the key
0: tip to being a couch crusher? Trad climbing. (laughs) uh, No, I I kid you not, absolutely trad climbing. So, you go climbing on a climbing wall, uh, you just... the, The nature of climbing walls, it's really easy to just thug your way up stuff without climbing really well, and that gets you so far. The strength part of it gets you a long way... Um but it takes a long, long, long time to build the technique to go along with that. And if you stop climbing for any period of time, you lose all that strength. And it's really hard to, it's, it's easy to get strength back, but it's really hard to get yourself back up to that same level um, without injury. Uh, whereas trad climbing, if you're going out trad climbing, strength is not the thing that gets you up things. It is technique. It is knowing how to rest how to stop and get yourself into a comfortable position to place gear, to chill out. And you might be on the wall for 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, So you've got the endurance and the technique side ticked. And if you stop climbing for a little bit, your strength might go down, your endurance might go down a little bit, but you never lose that technique. That is one thing that has never, ever failed me. And yeah, I I went through a few years of really not climbing that much, to be honest, just because I was a lazy git. Um, but when I came back, I hadn't lost that technique at all. I felt really weak and I felt really heavy, uh, but I hadn't lost that technique and I could still climb reasonably hard. Uh, I don't think I've ever dropped below 7b, which I'm taking as a huge win. Um and yeah I I attribute all of that to just having a a base for climbing built out of trad climbing. Technique is the thing that got me through everything. I was never that strong to be fair, to be fair. It was all just technique.